0: this light a beauty.
1: Hey listeners and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy in England.
0: And I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston and today we have an episode for you all about Brienne of Tarth.
1: That's right. Lucky number 13 is all about Brienne the Beauty, the warrior maid, a maiden with a quest. And we'll be looking at some of the major themes that run through Brienne's arc. Knighthood, honour and beauty, to name a few.
0: Yes, we will. We'll start with an overview, then a look at her arc with Jaime, continuing on from our last episode, as well as a brief look at her ideas of knighthood and her possible relationship to Sir Duncan the Tall.
1: Yeah, we're going to discuss that popular fan theory. And we'll also examine her travels in the Riverlands during Feast, With a very close look at our pick for one of the most unappreciated and perhaps funniest characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, Nimble Dick Crab.
0: And we'll wrap it up with a look at what happens when she's reunited with the undead Catelyn Stark, as well as some speculation on what we might see in the Winds of Winter.
1: With our usual readings set to music, a song from the fandom, and a special advert from Westeros, that's going to round out the episode. So, listeners, hope you'll stay with us for our look at Brienne of Tarth.
0: And when the last of them had fallen, the mother had delivered Connington to her. This time Sir Ronnet held a sword and not a rose. Every blow she dealt him was sweeter than a kiss.
1: Okay, so an overview. We first see Brienne at Bitterbridge as Kat, Renly and others watch a melee. We see a huge armoured warrior who could probably match up physically with someone like the Hound.
0: Yeah, and the reader, as well as Catelyn, who's the point of view character, immediately assumes her to be a man. This gives the grounding for one of Brienne of Tarth's central themes, gender identity. As she bests Loras, she reveals that she's not only a female, but an accomplished warrior. The shock upon this reveal sets the stage for Brienne here, a woman in a man's world.
1: And the conflicts and challenges that arise from Brienne's desire to challenge gender traditions in Westeros continue through her arc. And it's a devotion to becoming a warrior and upholding knightly values in spite of opposition and ridicule from the male-dominated world which underscores Brienne of Tarth as one of the truly brave and heroic characters in this series.
0: Okay, so let's look at her upbringing to get a better sense of the depth to her character. She's the highborn daughter of Lord Selwyn of Tarth, and we find out quite early on that she never knew her mother when she confides this to Catelyn.
1: And we mentioned in our Jon Snow episode that he didn't have a female role model, which might have shaped him as a warrior and as a man of the Night's Watch. Well, perhaps there's a similarity with Brienne here. She also seems to have lacked a female role model, so it's perhaps no surprise that she's now following a path usually taken by men.
0: And as we've seen with other characters who lacked these female role models in their youth, this might have had an impact on the decisions she made through her life. And we do get glimpses of Brienne's formative years and the events that have helped to shape her. One recurring moment in her memories that underlines her struggle as a rather unattractive female at odds with what's expected of her as a lord's daughter is her meeting with Red Ronnet Connington in her
1: youth. Yeah, and it's interesting how this story unfolds. First of all, Brienne best Ronnet at the Bitterbridge melee. And at first, we don't realise the significance there. Then in Feast, she remembers being 12 years old and being matched with Ronnet it's clear from her memory that it was an awkward and uncomfortable situation. So, by now, we know there's a story there, and the way it's being presented in these snippets underlines that it's a really deep and meaningful tale for Brienne. A similar gradual reveal technique is used for Cersei and the Valenqua tale, for example.
0: And later in Feast, we learn that Brienne's besting of Ronnet was some kind of revenge for her. It says... The mother had delivered Connington to her. This time Sir Ronnet held a sword and not a rose. Every blow she dealt him was sweeter than a kiss.
1: And Brienne mentions hating roses again. Loris's sigil had made her fight harder because of the sight of roses. She then dreams of cutting Ronnet's hand off when he offers her a rose. But the full story ends up coming from Ronnet himself when he talks to Jamie.
0: Yeah, after all these snippets, the story is completed by Ronnet in A Feast for Crows. We learn that Brienne was actually betrothed three times, and she herself has brief memories of this. She recalls the first, a younger son of Lord Karen who died with sadness, and the third, an old landed knight whom she bested in the training yard with satisfaction. Ronet tells Jamie that he was the second, but he found her repulsive and awkward. He brought the 12-year-old Brienne a rose and swore it was all she would ever get from him.
1: Right, and Ronit insults Brienne to Jamie, calling her a sow in silk and making fun of her breast size. Jamie, who by now has seen Brienne's inner beauty, smashes Ronit with his gold hand and makes him call her by her name. And Ronit responds with, Brienne the beauty.
0: Yeah, and that nickname really emphasizes the theme of beauty in Brienne's arc. And this is a strong reminder to us. Ronna isn't doing anything Jamie hadn't been doing throughout the books, mocking Brienne with regards to her physical appearance. Yeah, we don't think Jamie's being hypocritical here. The point is made that Brienne has changed Jamie's perception of her. The two have a remarkable relationship that we'll cover today, but here we see that she's changed him for the good.
1: Notice that Jamie demands Ronna call her by her name. This is something the Kingslayer has suffered with himself, and shows one of many ways that the two characters relate. And Jamie seems deeply affected by Brienne's courage and honour, which catalyzes his road to redemption.
0: So, plenty more on this unlikely duo later. But this story with Rana is obviously a huge one for Brienne. It shaped her in some way. Perhaps it was the first horrible taste of the stinging rejection that seems to have followed her through her life. Through no fault of her own, Brienne is an outsider.
1: Yeah, Neronet's story underlines a problem with Brienne. On one hand, she's a highly competent warrior, yet underneath, she's very, very sensitive. There's a good quote. It says she'd been more afraid of sniggers than of swords.
0: Mm, that says a lot about Brienne, more afraid of sniggers than swords. Unlike Cersei, who uses the mantra words are wind during her walk of shame. Interesting how those two characters are set up to contrast while having some surprising similarities.
1: And we'll talk a little bit more about those two today. So Brienne can tap into the aggression of someone like the Hound. Remember, Jamie describes her as the Hound with teats. Yet she's sensitive and compassionate, kind of like Sansa, for example.
0: Right, and it's this mix of almost incompatible traits within Brienne which makes her so interesting, we think.
1: Yes, it is. And with no noted female role model, and with Brienne portraying her father as having a regular stream of uncommitted lovers, it seems she might have looked elsewhere for inspiration and life coaching.
0: And going back to her youth, there's a male who we should mention who seems to have been very important to her character development, the Master of Arms at Evenfall.
1: Yeah, he was called Goodwin, and he taught Brienne how to fight. He was clearly a major influence, and seems to have had no problem with Brienne's aspirations to be a female warrior. Goodwin seems to have picked up on Brienne's sensitivity as being in conflict with her warrior-made ambitions... And we learn he made her butcher animals in an attempt to toughen her up emotionally.
0: And Brienne has a real hard time with the butchering, crying as we see her do on occasion when being mocked. This gave Goodwin cause for concern. Perhaps Brienne would never make it as a fighter that her sensitive nature was a weakness.
1: Yeah, Brienne thinks of those butchered pigs as she contemplates having to kill Heil Hunt. It's clear those doubts of Goodwin's are also present in her own mind. Later in the same chapter, though, Brienne makes a triple kill on some of the brave companions that had previously treated her so badly.
0: And through these themes of gender roles, humiliation and sensitivity, we arrive at Brienne's problem with trusting men. From Red Ronnet, to the many insults she receives specific to her gender, to the terrible threats of rape thrown her way, and the hurtful game played by the knights at Bitterbridge, it's easy to see why Brienne struggles to trust men. And the threats and insults only serve to emphasise one of Brienne's defining features, her chastity and her status as a warrior maid.
1: Well, being a woman in a man's world is very difficult in Westeros, especially at this time of war and lawlessness. And given her persistence to be what she wants to be, it really underlines her bravery and determination. Brienne's mistrust of men is warranted, But sometimes it's really detrimental, as we see in the unfolding of relationships with people like Jamie and Nimble Dick Crab. And this is something we're going to explore today.
0: Yet one man Brienne put a lot of trust in was Renly Baratheon. Renly was almost the tonic for Red Ronnet. He danced with her when he visited Evenfall. She'd been terrified of further mockery after the Ronnet incident, and then Renly treated her well. Brienne kind of fell in love with him after that and wanted nothing more than to protect him, which, as we know, didn't end well.
1: But with Renly, we get a glimpse of Brienne's natural trusting state and a naive idealistic side to her personality as well. It's no surprise that Loris later implies that Renly had actually found Brienne to be rather absurd, despite being fond of her loyalty.
0: And so there's definitely a naivete with Brienne, again, perhaps comparable to Sansa in some way. Kat says to her, there's a sweet innocence about you, child.
1: And there is something quite far-fetched about Brienne's notion of finding the Stark girls on her adventures. It's not really a shock that her search is fruitless, and yet it's based almost entirely upon her perception of knighthood, that true knights uphold their vows and protect the innocent.
0: So, she can be a daydreamer and naive, yet on the flip side, she's practical, proactive, dutiful, and very determined. Again, we see traits in Brienne that seem contradictory and at odds with each other.
1: Yes, and this often puts Brienne in conflict with herself, and actually her two sides put us very much in mind of Sansa Stark, as we mentioned, and also of Arya, and we wonder if Catelyn recognizes this as well and perhaps felt some kind of maternal desire to foster Brienne in some way.
0: Well, that's certainly possible, and we should point out that while Arya and Sansa have been referred to by their father as the sun and the moon, the arms of House Tarth contain both the sun and the moon, perhaps symbolising Brienne's dual nature.
1: Mm, And anyway, Brienne is a wonderfully crafted character, full of complexities and unusually paired opposing traits – All of this makes her a very interesting character to the reader, and brings out truths about other characters that are around her. Her years of being an outsider serve her really well as someone capable of being independent and self-reliant, and as the books go on, we see more and more inner strength, and dare we say it, beauty.
0: Yeah, Brienne is presented early on as an ugly and unattractive person who could have been defined by this. But as she became even uglier through the books, losing teeth and some of her face, we see what seems to have affected Jamie, her inner beauty.
1: And we think that it's a triumph that George is using this well-worn trope of beauty on the inside in a way which seems to avoid the typical clichés, and it's emphasised by the nickname Brienne the Beauty. It's the depth of Brienne's character which helps in this sense, and the realism employed by George, continually challenging the Maid of Tarth in new and interesting ways.
0: So that's our overview of Brienne. Next we'll take a look at her relationship with Jaime Lannister, and we'll start out with a reading of Jaime and Brienne in The Bear Pit at Harrenhal.
1: You gave her a tawny sword. The goat brayed laughter, spraying him with wine and spittle. Of course. I'll pay her bloody ransom. Gold, sapphires, whatever you want, pull her out of there. You want her? Go get her. So he did. He put his good hand on the marble rail and vaulted over, rolling as he hit the sand. The bear turned at the thump, sniffing, watching this new intruder warily. Jamie scrambled to one knee, and he filled his fist with sand.
0: Kingslayer?
1: He heard Brienne say, astonished. Jamie? He uncoiled, flinging the sand at the bear's face. The bear mauled the air and roared like blazes.
0: What are you doing here?
1: Something stupid. Now get behind me. He circled toward her putting himself between Brienne and the bear.
0: You get behind, I have the sword.
1: A sword with no point and no edge. Get behind me. He saw something half buried in the sand and snatched it up with his good hand. It proved to be a human jawbone with some greenish flesh still clinging to it, crawling with maggots. Charming, he thought, wondering whose face he held. The bear was edging closer so Jamie whipped his arm around and flung bone, meat and maggots at the beast's head. He missed by a good yard. Brienne tried to dart around, but he kicked her legs out from under her. She fell in the sand, clutching the useless sword. Jamie straddled her, and the bear came charging. There was a deep twang, and a feathered shaft sprouted suddenly beneath the beast's left eye. Blood and slaver ran from its open mouth and another bolt took him in the leg. The bear roared and reared. He saw Jamie and Brienne again and lumbered toward them. More crossbows fired, the quarrels ripping through fur and flesh. At such short range, the bowmen could hardly miss. The shafts hit as hard as maces, but the bear took another step. When the beast swiped to him, he danced aside, shouting and kicking sand. The bear turned to follow his tormentor and took another two quarrels in the back. He gave one last rumbling growl, settled back onto his haunches, stretched out on the blood-stained sand and died. Brienne got back to her knees, clutching the sword and breathing short ragged breaths. Steel Shanks' archers were winding their crossbows and reloading while the bloody mummers shouted curses and threats at them. Brorge and Three Toes had swords out, Jamie saw, and Zollo was uncoiling his whip. You slew my bear! Vargo Hope shrieked. And I'll serve you the same if you give me trouble. We're taking the wench. Steel Shanks threw back. Her name is Brienne, Jamie said. Brienne, the Maid of Tarth. You are still a maiden, I hope? Yes. Oh, good, Jamie said. I only rescue maidens.
0: So, that was Jamie saving Brienne from Vargo Holt's bear pit. Very nice, Yoke boy. I think you know I have a soft spot for that scene.
1: Yes, thanks, Lady Quinn. And so, one fun observation we wanted to mention about that scene is that the human jawbone Jamie finds and wonders whose face he held might well have belonged to Armory Lorch. Who'd earlier been fed to the bear by his rival Fargo Hote. And now, moving on, that scene marks an interesting development in the relationship between the unlikely pair of Jamie and Brienne.
0: It really does. So, Jamie and Brienne's combined arc began when Catelyn released Jamie with a host of vows taken at Swordpoint into Brienne's care to be returned to King's Landing to obtain the release of her daughters.
1: So, early on, Jamie and Brienne's relationship is characterised by a lack of respect. Brienne calls Jamie Kingslayer and is clearly disgusted by what she perceives as him breaking faith with his knighthood and his position as a Kingsguard. And Jamie, or he calls her, Wench, and mocks her size and her ugliness, even thinking to himself that she's the hound with teats, or would be if she had any teats to speak of.
0: And he continues to taunt her with the same epithet that he's had to bear these past 15 years, reminding her several times that she is also charged with being a kingslayer.
1: But Brienne gives almost as good as she gets, with comments like, your crimes are past forgiving, Kingslayer. In spite of her determination to get him to King's Landing safely, as promised to Lady Catelyn, her disdain for him is really clear. And when he tries to goad her into a rage, she simply replies with scorn. It is a rare and precious gift to be a knight, and even more so a knight of the King's Guard. It is a gift given to few, "'A gift you scorned and soiled.'"
0: Mm, and here are Jamie's words and thoughts at hearing this. First he thinks, "'A gift you want desperately, wench, and can never have.'" Then he says aloud, "'I earned my knighthood. Nothing was given to me. I won a tourney melee at thirteen when I was yet a squire. At fifteen I rode with Sir Arthur Dane against the Kingswood Brotherhood, and he knighted me on the battlefield.'" It was that white cloak that soiled me, not the other way around. So spare me your envy. It was the gods who neglected to give you a cock, not me.
1: So first of all, we think this brings up a very interesting comparison between Brienne and Cersei. As we discussed in our last episode, Cersei plainly wishes that she wore the pants of House Lannister. And with Brienne, we also see a a strong desire to fill a traditionally male role Although, as we mentioned earlier, she also has a more feminine side, a tender heart, and an almost romantic nature. She's quite fond of heroic stories, for instance. Very similar to Sansa, in a way.
0: Yeah, that's true. And we also think it's interesting that Jamie is the one to highlight this quality in both women. Now, looking closer at that passage, there's a contrast to be made between Jamie earning his knighthood, which is something Brienne can never have, and yet being handed his place in the king's guard for reasons unrelated to his skill or character, while Brienne clearly earned her place in Renly's king's guard through her skill and devotion.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. And getting back to Jamie's response about soiling his knighthood, Brienne isn't the only one who accuses him of soiling his white cloak. Barristan Selmy has also used that term as well, but Jamie angrily asserts. It was the white cloak that soiled me, not the other way round. And bearing in mind that both Brienne and the reader have yet to hear the full story of what happened with Ares, in hindsight, we have to consider the conflicting nature of the vows Jamie referenced in his meeting with Catelyn at Riverrun.
0: Yeah, remember when he told her, So many vows, they make you swear and swear and then went on to sum up both his king's guard vows and his knightly vows, ending with, No matter what you do, you're forsaking one vow or the other. We definitely have a sense by now that there was some service required of him as a king's guard that was in conflict with his knightly vows, and furthermore, that he's angry
1: about it. Well, Once we know the full story, it's obvious that protect the innocent, defend the weak, respect the gods, obey the laws may have been all but impossible whilst doing the bidding of the mad king. Not only did the king want to burn thousands of innocents in king's landing as the rebellion bore down upon him, but we learn in bits and pieces about other smaller things that would have been conflicting.
0: Yeah, like standing by while Ares murdered the Starks and their bannermen and burned Lord Chelsted and raped his own wife and refused to let his daughter-in-law and grandchildren seek safety on Dragonstone with Rhaella and Viserys. As Gerald Hightower told him, you swore a vow to guard the king, not to judge him.
1: And all told, turning a blind eye might have become commonplace during the time Jamie stood guard for Ares, and for someone who is arguably an idealistic young knight, it is perhaps no wonder that he reached a breaking point where he chose his knightly vows over the King's Guard's vows.
0: Well, at this point, Brianne hasn't experienced having her vows be in conflict with each other and is still able to maintain the purity of her non literal knighthood. George has given us an interesting dichotomy here with the perfect knight and the soiled knight. But as they travel together, the dividing line grows somewhat blurred.
1: It's Brienne herself who at first draws that line quite sharply. And then after stressing over and over that he's under her protection, we get to the sword fight between them, which leads to their capture by the Bloody Mummers. And this is a key moment between them, where they each gain some respect for each other's skills. Jamie is fighting with shackles on his wrists, using a longsword with a two-handed grip. He's fighting savagely. It was as if she had an iron cage around her that stopped every blow. She is stronger than I am. The realisation chilled him.
0: Right, and here we see Brienne deploying the advice of her old master-at-arms, Goodwin. She was quicker than any woman her size had a right to be. The gods had given her stamina too, which Sir Goodwin deemed a noble gift. Fighting with sword and shield is a wearisome business, and victory oft went to the man with most endurance. Sir Goodwin had taught her to fight cautiously, to conserve her strength, while letting her foes spend theirs in furious attacks. Men will always underestimate you, he said, and their pride will make them want to vanquish you quickly, lest it be said that a woman tried them sorely.
1: And later Brienne will recall this on two occasions. First, how Jaime Lannister had come at her that way, in the woods by Maidenpool. But thinking of the fight again later, it had been all that she could do to keep his blade at bay, remembering he was weak from his imprisonment and chained at the wrists.
0: So they really gained some respect for each other there, just as the Bloody Mummers arrive on the scene. Later on, we'll see that some empathy for Jamie developed from this fight as well when Brienne thinks. No knight in the Seven Kingdoms could have stood against him at his full strength, with no chains to hamper him. Jamie had done many wicked things, but the man could fight. His maiming had been monstrously cruel. It was one thing to slay a lion, another to hack his paw off and leave him broken and bewildered.
1: Also later, when confronted with the inconsistency of apparently trying to kill someone who she claimed was under her protection, Bren confessed that, In anger I forgot myself, but I would never have killed him. If he dies, the Lannisters will put my lady's daughters to the sword.
0: So, the line between captor and captive becomes a bit blurred there, and then after they fall into the clutches of the Bloody Mummers and Jaime loses his hand, Brienne gets a taste of what true evil is, and we see a sort of understanding grow between them. Not a huge shock in the face of their shared trauma, but Brienne gradually arrives at a place where she's able to evaluate him differently than she was at first. Without a doubt, Jamie seems less a villain when the Bloody Mummers are around.
1: Yes, Jamie starts to look like a nice guy when Vargo Hoat's around. And now not only does she urge him to live when he would have given up after the amputation, but he saves her from rape with his lies to Erzwick and Vargo Hote about sapphires. These two begin to look out for each other now, and this doesn't end when they're at last delivered to Roose Bolton at Harrenhal.
0: Yeah, when Jamie is sent to Kyburn to see to his infected stump and other wounds, he asks Kyburn to see to Brienne as well. Kyburn asks, "What is this woman to you?" And Jamie names her, "My protector."
1: Now, one thing that struck us is that during this part of Jamie's arc, he has become progressively more and more filthy. Described as unwashed, unshaven and wasted after his imprisonment at Riverrun, Jamie shaves his head after they leave. But after their capture by the mummers, he becomes positively filthy, described as having vomited on and soiled himself. And of course he's wearing his rotting hand around his throat, and is absolutely coated in grime, blood, and pus as well. Probably Jamie here is at his lowest point physically.
0: Hmm, and could this be some statement on the iconic Soiled Knight? We wonder, especially in light of what comes next. After receiving medical attention, the next place we see Jamie and Brienne is in the bathhouse at Harrenhal. He appears as Brienne is in the bath and climbs in with her in a way that seems designed to disquiet her. And as he sits there and begins to wash, it says, the water darkened as the caked dirt dissolved off his skin.
1: Yes, yeah, so Jamie is cleansing himself for the first time in months and months. And he and Brienne begin to exchange their typical barbed comments. But as the dirt starts to dissolve... Jamie finds himself telling Brienne exactly what happened that day in King's Landing, with Ned Stark bearing down upon the city and his own father at the gates. Finally, both Brienne and the reader learn what has been behind all of his cryptic comments about the murder of Ares and his conflicting vows.
0: And in the face of Brienne's disbelief at the end of his story, why didn't you tell someone? He replies... The knights of the King's Guard are sworn to keep the King's secrets. Would you have me break my oath? So really emphasising the dilemma he faced there on the one hand, and on the other symbolically cleansing himself of his shame by finally confessing the truth of it to another human being.
1: And this literal and symbolic cleaning of Jamie is why the bathhouse was the perfect place for Jamie to earn some redemption both from the reader and from Brienne. George has washed away some of that grime from a knight who seems soiled since very early in Game of Thrones.
0: So, not only is this a symbolic starting point of Jamie's redemption arc for the reader, it also marks the beginning of a series of unlikely romantic overtones between Brienne and Jamie. In the tubs, Jamie finds himself becoming aroused through his brief glimpses of Brienne's nakedness, And when he starts to fall as he stands in the tub, it says, Brienne caught him before he could fall. Her arm was all goose flesh, clammy and chilled, but she was strong and gentler than he would have thought. Gentler than Cersei, he thought, as she helped him from the tub.
1: Right, so in contrast to earlier, his comparison of Brienne and Cersei is now more favourable towards Brienne. For her part, Brienne will remember that scene later. It says... At Harrenhal, the tubs had been huge and made of stone. The bathhouse had been thick with the steam rising off the water, and Jamie had come walking through the mist, naked as his name day, looking half a corpse and half a god. He climbed into the tub with me, she remembered, blushing.
0: So, there's something going on here, more than mutual respect for swordsmanship or gratitude for the protection they've given each other.
1: And with her ugly appearance... "'inner beauty, kindness, honesty, and chastity. "'Brienne seems like an inversion of Cersei, "'and so a fondness of some sort at least "'might be appealing to Jamie, "'who finds himself at the crossroads of change.'"
0: But Brienne still calls him the Kingslayer, so they still have a ways to go. Later, when they dine with Roose Bolton, they're brought up to date on what's been happening with Starks, Freys, and Lannisters while they've been travelling, Bruce speaks cryptically about the prospects of King Rob, telling them about the Karstarks, Duskendale, and the upcoming wedding at the twins. The overall tone is quite menacing, prompting Brienne to defend Rob, in Jamie's thoughts, stoutly, as stubbornly loyal of speech as she was of deed.
1: Yes, yeah, she has proved herself to be both stubborn and loyal so far. And the result of the interview with Roose is an agreement that Jamie will absolve him of any responsibility for his maiming. Brienne is informed that Arya Stark is in custody and will be returned to the North, while Sansa has been married to the Imp. When she stubbornly repeats her mission from Catelyn to deliver Jamie in exchange for the girls, she's told, "'Sir Jamie will continue on to King's Landing.' I said nothing about you, I fear. It would be unconscionable of me to deprive Lord Vargo of both his prizes. Were I you, my lady, I should worry less about Starks and rather more about Sapphires."
0: Hmm. And so Jamie sets out on the road to King's Landing, in the company of Steel Shanks Walton, Kyburn, and 200 men. He's looking ahead to Cersei and has only a momentary pang at leaving Brienne behind, even when he's told by Kyburn that the sapphireless ransom offered by her father pretty much assures that she'll be raped and abused by the Mummers.
1: Right, and he resolves to think no more about her, which lasts as long as until he falls asleep with his head on a weirwood stump and has a dream.
0: And this is a remarkable dream. He's naked beneath Casterly Rock, and his hand is whole. He's forced its spearpoint into a watery cavern where his sister and father and other family members appear and tell him he is in his place, his darkness. Then he finds himself alone in the darkness with a sword lit with blue flame. When the flame goes out, he hears Circe say, he will die.
1: But not for long, because into his darkness appears Brienne, naked as well and bound but still stubbornly declaring her oath and obligation to keep him safe. He cuts her bonds, and suddenly she has a flaming sword as well, and he thinks, in this light, she could almost be a beauty. In this light, she could almost be a knight.
0: And here's where it gets really weird. Jamie hears a horse approaching, and for a moment, he's reminded of Ned Stark judging him in the throne room at King's Landing after Ares' death. But it's Rhaegar Targaryen and Jamie's Kingsguard brothers who appear, and accuse him of breaking his vows. He tries to tell them how it happened, to justify himself, but his sword's flame goes out, leaving only Brienne to protect him, and his ghosts come rushing in.
1: And when he wakes screaming, he notices the stump is made of weirwood, which reminds him again of Ned Stark, and he has an odd thought. It was not him, it was never him. And while he could simply be thinking of his dream, We think this might actually be a bit more symbolic. Jamie has spent the last 15 years judging himself, just as much as anyone else has done. His anger is directed as much at himself as at the world, but Brienne has had a profound effect upon him. With her stubborn loyalty to Catelyn and her vows, he's seen what idealism and chivalry can mean, and that it's possible to save and protect a person even if you have no personal interest in doing so.
0: And so, he turns the train around. Using a combination of threats and bribes, he convinces Walton to bring the entire group back where they came from. As he says, I left something at Hall, And that, of course, brings us to the scene we opened with in the reading, The Rescue of Brienne from the Bear and the Bloody Mummers both.
1: Right. And the reason why Brienne is now indebted to Jamie for her very life. When she asks him why he returned, using his proper name by the way, he simply tells her, I dreamed of you.
0: Mm, And so, Jamie and Brienne arrive at King's Landing together, as planned. Along the way, they receive news of the Red Wedding, which devastates Brienne. Here's the passage from Jamie's thoughts. She looked so miserable that Jamie almost found himself wanting to comfort her. Since that day, Brienne had been like one half dead. Even calling her Wench failed to provoke any response. The strength is gone from her. The woman had dropped a rock on Robin Riger, battled the bear with a tourney sword, bitten off Varga Hote's ear, and fought Jamie to exhaustion. But she was broken now, done.
1: And in King's Landing, Brienne is accused of killing Renly by Loras, and Jaime, in spite of standing up for her honour, has her sent to a tower cell under guard. Brienne is deeply hurt by this, interpreting it as a slight. Though in reality, the guard is for her own safety, as Loris has just threatened her with naked steel.
0: Hmm. Later on, Jaime meets with Loris, hears his version of Renly's death, and gives him Brienne's. He tells Loris Brienne's ugly and pig-head stubborn, but she lacks the wits to be a liar, and she's loyal past the point of sense. She swore an oath to bring me to King's Landing, and here I sit. Considering all she did to protect me, I have no doubt she would have fought for Renly had there been a foe to fight.
1: And Loris admits some doubt, after which Jamie comes to a decision. Ask her. Go to her cell. Ask your questions and hear her answers. If you are still convinced that she murdered Lord Renly, I will see that she answers for it. The choice will be yours. Accuse her or release her. All I ask is that you judge her fairly on your honour as a knight.
0: So Loris apparently absolves Brienne, because the next time we see her, Jamie's giving her the sword Oathkeeper and charging her with finding Sansa Stark. As the only way the two of them will be able to make good upon their vows to the now dead Catelyn Stark. He tells Brienne, I have made kings and unmade them. Sansa Stark is my last chance for honor. Besides, Kingslayers should band together.
1: And with the sword, a letter from Tommen, and armor, gold, and a course gifted to her by Jaime, she sets out into the Riverlands to do just that. We'll be looking at that part of her journey a bit later, but first it's time for a song. Here's The Bear and the Maiden Fair by Irish Moutard. <laughs> She'll never dance with a hairy bear She'll never dance with a hairy bear He'll lift her high into the air She comes one night, but he's a bear All black and brown and full of hair She'll with and will a male bear the honey from her hair Oh, she's a legend, pure and fair She'll never dance with a hairy bear She'll never dance with a that was Irish Moutard's version of The Bear and the Maiden Fair. And they're a French-Canadian Celtic punk band, and we love their version.
0: Yeah, it's a really great version of the song, and we think they capture the spirit of a rowdy drinking tune. And thanks to Irish Moutard for using Creative Commons licensing. We'll link to them on our website. And now, on with the show.
1: So, one thing we see with Brienne is that her definition of knighthood is closely tied with vows and keeping one's vows. In a sense, for her, being a knight is mostly about honour, defined as a strict adherence to the promises that one makes.
0: And the type of honour that Brienne seems to revere seems almost sacred at times. Indeed, her character has much in common with the pure and chaste knight Sir Galahad, the only knight in Arthurian legend perfect enough to achieve the Holy Grail.
1: Yeah, not only is Brienne both pure and devoted to a quest, but with her often unrealistic ideals, she at times seems to have difficulty relating to others in her world. Much as Galahad did in his, existing almost on a plane above those around her.
0: Yeah, remember that quote from Kat about her sweet innocence, which is probably a large part of why Kat entrusted Brienne with the quest for her daughters. And of course, Jaime speaks about her honour, specifically her honesty, when defending her from Loras Tyrell's accusations about Renly.
1: And since keeping your vows really does boil down to being honest... This quality of honour Brienne has can seem to be about honesty. We think there's another knight from the Seven Kingdoms for whom honour was always about honesty.
0: Yes, we do. And this knight has much in common with Brienne, having lived both the life of a hedge knight and that of a king's guard, as she has. And we're talking, of course, about Sir Duncan the Tall from the Duncan Ed books.
1: Yeah, I think some of you might know where we're going here. The idea that Brienne could be a descendant of Sir Duncan the Tall, And this is a fan theory that has been well-trodden, but we're going to go through it because we think it could be a great connection that George might have made between A Song of Ice and Fire and the Duncan Egg novellas.
0: So, to start out with, before the publication of A Feast for Crows, George let readers know that they would be seeing a descendant of Dunks in that book, so people wondered and watched for clues.
1: And they found quite a big one. When Brienne leaves King's Landing, she's bearing an oak shield with the black bat of Lothston on it, found in the armoury at Harrenhal by Jamie. It's commented on several times with those arms that they're bad luck.
0: Now this is already similar to Dunk, who once bore a hanged man upon his shield and was told how unlucky it was so wanting to keep the valuable oaken shield and knowing that as an accused murderess she dare not bear the arms of tarth openly so she seeks out a painter in duskendale and describes the design she wants it says your door reminded me of an old shield i once saw in my father's armory she described the arms as best she could recall them
1: and when she returns to retrieve the shield we get a full description it was more a picture than a proper coat of arms and the sight of it took her back through the long years, to the cool dark of her father's armoury. She remembered how she'd run her fingertips across the cracked and fading paint, over the green leaves of the tree and along the path of the falling star.
0: Now let's look at the description of Dunk's Oak Shield, painted by Tansel Tutal in The Hedge Knight. The sunset colours were rich and bright, the tree tall and strong and noble, the falling star was a bright slash of paint across the oaken sky.
1: Yeah, so very similar. So is this the big clue that George promised? It could be, though when you look closely, the clues about Brienne and Dunk being related don't stop there, and they aren't limited to a feast for crows.
0: Right, they aren't. First of all, we have the sheer size of Brienne, one would expect that any descendant of the nearly seven-foot-tall Sir Duncan's would be recognisable by their height. And of course, we're told repeatedly that Brienne tops six feet tall, taller than Renly even, and freakishly tall for a woman.
1: And as we mentioned, both Brienne and Dunk experienced two radically different types of knighthood, as a Kingsguard and as a Hedge Knight. But in reality, neither of them is an anointed knight.
0: Right. Brienne, for reasons of her gender, has been unable to obtain this dream. But what of Sir Duncan, who became the Lord Commander of Aegon V's Kingsguard?
1: Well, a little over ten years ago, George confirmed at a convention in Boston that Dunk was not knighted by Sir Arlen. Of course, this leaves open the possibility that he will yet be knighted by someone else. But the fact remains, during the stories that we've seen him in at least... Wondering the Reach and the Riverlands, he was not an anointed knight at that time.
0: Though he certainly acted the role of a knight, as we've come to understand it, protecting the weak and maintaining his knightly honour, which, as we said, seems to be closely tied to honesty.
1: And this could seem a bit contradictory, since if he wasn't knighted, he's actually living a lie – But we do see his thoughts about honour and honesty, and we see his conflict over his knighthood grow in the course of the three novellas. And that's why we think it's really interesting to consider whether Dunk will actually be knighted by someone else in the future.
0: Right, and let's not forget that during their respective wanderings, Brienne and Dunk are attended by their squires, Pod and Egg, two very different boys, yet alike in their devotion to the masters they serve.
1: Okay, so there we have a few parallels. Now, how about some textual Easter eggs, Lady Quinn?
0: Yeah, there are a few. Going back to A Storm of Swords in one of their early heated exchanges, Jamie says to Brienne, Are you as thick as a castle wall? And of course, that's the catchphrase used for Dunk repeatedly in the Dunkin' Egg tales, Dunk the Lunk, thick as a castle wall.
1: Yes, so that could be quite a blatant one. And then there's a really great one later. Remember the bear scene that we opened with? After the rescue, Brienne asks Jamie why he came back, and he replies, I dreamed of you.
0: Yeah, and if we look all the way back in the hedge knight, Prince Darren Targaryen said that exact thing to Dunk on two occasions.
1: Yes, it's exactly that. I dreamed of you. OK, so finally we think there might be some similarities to be found – ...in their fighting styles. We looked at four scenes and found some definite likenesses, we think. First, we thought about Brienne's fight with Shagwell. We're going to look at this shortly, by the way. But Shagwell approached Brienne with a rock. And Brienne had a dagger hidden up her sleeve. Then we looked at Dunk's fight with Alan Cockshaw in The Mystery Knight. And in an inversion... Sir Allen had the dagger and Dunk the rock, but in both cases it seems pretty clear what won the day was the sheer size of the winners, Dunk and Brienne.
0: Right, and we looked at Brienne's final victory over Loras Tyrell in the melee at Bitterbridge and Dunk's triumph over Arian Targaryen in the Hedge Knight. In both cases, the opponents end up off their horses, with the larger person and the eventual victor using their size and strength to gain the upper hand. Both Loras and Arian grudgingly yield to their opponents when their visors are breached, exposing their faces.
1: So quite a similar fighting style, we think. We also want to know that we learned in The World of Ice and Fire that Lady Rohan Webber, the Red Widow of Coldmoat, and Dunk's love interest from The Sworn Sword, went on to become Jamie Lannister's great-grandmother. So, isn't it funny that Jamie and Dunk's possible descendant Brienne are now so close? And we think that's quite a good way to wrap up that particular loose end. And so, combining all the textual clues with the similarities in appearance and in their arcs and George's comments on the matter, all together... This makes us think that this theory is pretty nailed on.
0: And the final thing we want to mention is George's comments when asked after Feast for Crows if he would reveal Dunk's mystery descendant. He said, I gave a pretty strong hint in the new book. And when the questioner told him that he suspected Brienne, but thought that she might be too obvious and that George would be more subtle than that, George said, you think?
1: Yeah, that's typical George there we think that's exactly the kind of non-answer that he gives when he doesn't want to say too much.
0: Right, so all in all, this feels like the right conclusion to us. Of course, how exactly Dunk's shield ended up in Selwyn armory and how he might be related to Brienne is anyone's guess, but we should point out that since Egg didn't become Egg on the Fifth until he was a man grown with children, it's entirely possible that Dunk was also married and had children of his own before joining the King's Guard. So whether he married a girl from Tarth or someone else with whom he had a daughter who married a man of House Tarth, we think all will be revealed in due time.
1: Yes, yeah, so as much as we like this one, there's still admittedly quite a few pieces missing from the Brienne-Dunk theory. But we think it would be quite neat if these two... Perhaps two of the truest knights in this story turn out to be related. And now we're going to be taking a look at Brienne's arc in A Feast for Crows.
0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: after this
0: I have to find her there are others looking all wanting to capture her and sell her to the queen I have to find her first I promised Jamie oath keeper. he named the sword I have to try to save her or die in the attempt
1: So, now we're going to take a look at Brienne's travelogue in Feast and her search for Sansa's dark. In the previous segment, we mentioned Brienne's similarity to Sir Galahad, the purest and most innocent of King Arthur's knights, and the only one to obtain the Holy Grail.
0: Right, and the quest for the Holy Grail is often seen as one of fruitless wandering, and in many cases the landscape that the questing knights must travel through is represented as a wasteland.
1: The theme of the Wasteland has been commonplace in Arthurian literature since the Middle Ages and has seen more recently in T.S. Eliot's 20th century poem, The Wasteland. We think that no region of Westeros can better represent this theme than the post-war Riverlands.
0: And it's probably no accident that Brienne's fruitless quest in A Feast for Crows finds her crisscrossing this devastated landscape in search of something that she seeks, mainly as a means of keeping a series of vows.
1: Right, not unlike the Grail Knights of Legend, Brienne has made a series of holy vows, first to Lady Catelyn and later to Jaime, to find one or both of the Stark girls. It's probably significant that she has no plan for what she would do if she did indeed find them. For Brienne, it seems that the quest itself is the actual goal.
0: Yes, at one point early in Feast, while contemplating the futility of her quest, she reminds herself that no promise was as solemn as one sworn to the dead, and thinks, I will never stop looking, I will give up my life if need be, give up my honour, give up all my dreams.
1: So we can see that Brienne takes his quest so, so seriously on account of the vow sworn to the now-dead Catelyn Stark and promises made to Jaime Lannister in King's Landing.
0: And while many readers find these chapters of Brienne's to be boring, they're actually some of the most important chapters in A Feast for Crows, we think. Without them, we'd have no eye on the common people of the Riverlands, We wouldn't know what was happening with the Brotherhood Without Banners or the remaining Bloody Mummers or some other significant characters. And we wouldn't get one of the best monologues in the series, Septon Maribald's Speech on Broken Men.
1: Yeah, that's a lot of people's favourite passage in the books. And viewed in this grail questing light, we can see the sense to the way that these chapters were written. Whether you prefer your Arthurian legend in the form of medieval romance, modernist poetry, or even Monty Python, there's something here for everyone.
0: And we'll be taking a close look at what might be a Python-esque moment in her travels very shortly. For now, let's have a brief overview of the places she visits and the elements that are introduced as she goes.
1: Okay, so we start with Brienne in Rosby. And she's perfecting her script, that is, the repeated words she used when she's looking around trying to find Sansa. And she still isn't quite sure of herself. On the road to Duskendale, she meets up with two hedge knights, Sir Illifer the Penniless and Sir Creighton Longbow.
0: Yeah, these two guys are priceless, especially Sir Creighton, who's full of down-home folksy sayings about what it means to be a knight. They initially take her to be a knight, but once they realise she's a woman, they both become very chivalrous, and Sir Creighton begins to school her on knighthood.
1: Yes, according to Sir Creighton, a true knight must defend the gentler sex, and a true knight is the only shield a maiden needs. And also, a knight swears by his sword, and... A sword is only as good as the man who wields it.
0: Hmm. So, Creighton proves very talented at reciting these little aphorisms and sayings about knights, but it's Sir Illifer who proves himself to be very observant when he examines Brienne and concludes from her bearing the Lust and shield and her size that she's the maid of Tarth, slayer of Renly Baratheon.
1: And Brienne is able to convince them of her innocence – but this scene really illustrates the problem of notoriety that a gigantic female warrior is going to face in Westeros. Unlike many other characters, Brienne is unable to mask her identity.
0: So they continue on together on the road towards Duskendale, where they meet Sir Shadrick, the Mad Mouse, in company of a merchant who's also bound for Duskendale. It turns out that the Mad Mouse is looking for Sansa Stark, and for the first time, Brienne realises that with a reward in play, she's not going to be the only person on this quest.
1: And we should point out that the Mad Mouse turns up in the Vale with Littlefinger by the end of Feast, so we think there's most likely some further significance to his meeting with Brienne, which only time will tell.
0: Okay, so Brienne manages to shake off her company and enter Duskendale alone, where she meets with the maester at the Dunfort, who is impatient as Brienne is only the latest in a string of people who's thought to seek Sansa in Dantos Hollard's hometown. His lack of insight leads Brienne to recall her interview with Brella, who was one of Sansa's maids in King's Landing, who assured Brienne that she would seek out her family.
1: Yeah and this is one of those almost there moments because Brienne is thinking about seeking out Liza Arryn in the Vale when she ventures into a blind alley and as she turns to leave stumbles into a young boy and this boy turns out to be the one on the pieboard horse that she remembers from earlier in the day but the reader might recall he's actually been following her since Rosby.
0: Yes, right, he's mentioned several times, but of course, Brienne doesn't realize this, but she is distracted by it and forgets all about the veil, going to have a meal at an inn, where she meets a certain dwarf who's a brother of the faith and is en route to King's Landing.
1: And this dwarf, described as not quite five feet tall, his nose veined and bulbous, dressed in the brown roughspun robes of a holy brother... And he's the one who tips her off about Nimble Dick Crab and the stinking goose in Maidenpool, as we'll discuss shortly. And sadly, he also seems to be one of those dwarves massacred in Cersei's kingdom-wide dwarf dragnet.
0: Right, in case you missed it, a few chapters later, a head is brought to Cersei by three wretched fools who naturally claim it's the head of the imp. Since the now rotting head has a familiar bulbous nose, where Tyrion had none, Cersei dismisses them, and they begin arguing with each other about whether the unfortunate man had lied when he said he was a sparrow, a brother of the faith.
1: Ah, poor man. Already the third in a string of unfortunates wrongly killed in an effort to sate the queen's desire for vengeance. At least this information on Dick Crab sets Brienne on a path she might not have otherwise taken, one that might seem pretty hopeful at first.
0: Well, Brienne sets out for Maidenpool and the Stinking Goose, and on the way she realises that she's being followed. It turns out to be the boy on the piebald horse, who is none other than Podrick Payne.
1: Yeah, so poor little Pod is following her, partly because he hopes that she'll lead him to Tyrion, and partly because he has nowhere else to go. Brienne learns that he was abandoned by his mother with a distant relative for whom he served as a page and squire until he was killed fighting at the Battle of the Green Fork under Tywin. After a brief misadventure, Sir Kevin took charge of Podrick and sent him to Tyrion.
0: So this is a young boy who hasn't had much care in his life and as we know he was devoted to Tyrion. After some brief training with the sword, Brienne thinks... He's still no squire, but I'm no knight, no matter how many times he calls me sir. And so she decides that she'll let him accompany her on her quest.
1: So they arrive in Maidenpool, where Brienne has an uncomfortable reunion with a knight from her past, Sir Hyle Hunt. And he was one of the knights in Renly's host, who had played a cruel game with Brienne, as we find out in this chapter.
0: Right. A group of knights had a wager with a cash prize to whichever claimed her maidenhead. It was young Dick Tarley who informed his father of the game, who put an end to it, and let Brienne know and know on certain terms that he held her responsible for it.
1: Mm, Brienne was shocked at this behaviour on the part of anointed knights. But at the same time, she becomes the victim of classic victim-blaming by Lord Randall. Along with his reputation as a fearsome warrior, a man of harsh justice, and a less than loving father, we now learn that Lord Randall is more than a little misogynistic.
0: Yeah, here's what he tells Brienne. A war host is no place for a maiden if you have any regard for your virtue or the honour of your house. You will take off that mail, return home, and beg your father to find a husband for you. The gods made men to fight and women to bear children... A woman's war is in the birthing
1: bed. So in Maidenpool, Brienne is also reunited with Lord Randall, who's not exactly overjoyed to find her there. He threatened to send her back to Tarth, and when she produces Tommen's letter stating that she's on the king's business, he has nothing but scorn for her prospects of finding Sansa Stark.
0: Right, and once again, the possibility of the veil is raised, but Tarly dismisses that as an option by giving her the news of Lysa Aaron's death. So it seems that Brienne finally abandons hope of finding Sansa with her family due to this information, which was correct, but it involved what the reader knows to be a tragic jump in logic.
1: Yeah, and following this interview, as Brienne seeks out the man that the dwarf in Duskendale told her about, we see the beginning of what might be viewed as aimless wondering, following false trails and misinformation that ultimately lands her in a situation where that parchment from Tommen can offer her no help whatsoever.
0: Mm, absolutely right. And we're going to look in detail at Nimble Dick Crab and Brienne's journey into Crackclot Point in the next segment. So now we'll skip ahead to what happens afterwards when she returns to Maidenpool with the information that she gleaned from the Mummers at the Whispers, that Sander Clegane had the Stark Girl with him, whom she assumes to be Sansa.
1: And something very interesting to the reader, though it's utterly insignificant to Brienne, happens her first night back in Maidenpool, and we'll file this one in the near-miss category. Whilst looking for a place to spend the night, Brienne and Pod go to the docks, thinking perhaps a ship will offer them a berth. Standing there observing these trading ships, she sees a bravosi galley called the Titan's Daughter, casting off her lines to ride out on the evening tide.
0: Mmm, and the careful reader will know that this is the very same ship that Arya Stark is on, bound for Braavos.
1: Ooh, Brienne actually seeing Arya's ship. That's a really good catch there that readers have made. And so Brienne is determined to track down the Hound. And via Ser Hyle's cousin, she learns of the fight at the inn and his supposed attack on Saltpans. She wants to go north to look for Sansa. After Pod she would go where her gods are. But she dare not leave the Riverlands without tracking down the Hound.
0: Right, so she sets out from Maidenpool once more, this time in the company of Sir Hyle Hunt and an itinerant septon named Meribald. And it's from Meribald that we get a compelling sense of the suffering of the people of the Riverlands and just how much of a wasteland this region has become in the aftermath of the War of the Five Kings.
1: This is where he makes one of the best speeches in the series, as we said, explaining the plight of the broken man. He tells of simple boys and men marched off to fight for their lords, who find it all an adventure until their first battle.
0: Yes, and for some, that's enough to break them. Others may go on for years, breaking after countless battles. Some break after seeing brothers, friends or comrades killed some after years of killing and stealing in order to survive, and some break in the face of a mortal threat. No matter what the cause, they become creatures of fear and desperation, but Maribald makes it clear that they're worthy of pity as well.
1: In the group hear rumours of broken men in the Saltpans area shortly before reaching their first destination, a lonely septary known as the Quiet Isle.
0: Right, and here Brienne encounters another fascinating man of the cloth, the Elder Brother. We discussed the presence of the novice gravedigger there in our Sander episode, so we won't duplicate that here, but the Elder Brother gives Brienne a very interesting piece of information. The girl with Sander Clegane was Arya Stark, not Sansa, and she disappeared somewhere between the Crossroads Inn and Saltpans.
1: Yeah, and he also tells her that the man who led the raid on Saltpans was not Sandor Clegane, telling her the story of the hound's death, the stolen hound's head helmet, and surmising that Arya may have been among the children that were actually killed at Saltpans.
0: Mmm, and this gives us a sense of the really close call Arya had, getting aboard that Bravosi ship probably not long before that raid occurred.
1: Yes, so many close calls on this travelogue. And notwithstanding her own personal development, now we see Brienne's quest become utterly aimless. The lead she had to follow evaporates. Her momentary amazement and hope at hearing that Arya Stark lived is shattered.
0: Yeah, so Brienne departs the Quiet Isle and journeys through a countryside devastated by war and now adorned with the rotting corpses of men apparently hung by the Brotherhood without banners, finally arriving at the Crossroads Inn, unbeknownst to her, now one of the Brotherhood headquarters.
1: And when Podrick questions her about their next move, she acknowledges to herself that her quest now has no focus, knowing that she'll have to make a choice, and soon. She even thinks about the symbolic nature of the Crossroads. They had come to the Crossroads quite literally, the place where the King's Road, the River Road and the High Road all came together.
0: Right, it's a place of choices and fateful decisions, either east, west, or north might lead her to Sansa, while the road south would be an admission of defeat, though there is some part of her that longs to return to Tarth, or at least to King's Landing to seek solace from Jamie.
1: But Brienne never has a chance to make her decision, because into the scene arrive Roj and Biter and their companions. In the brutal fight that follows, Brienne kills Roj only to be mauled by Biter. her arm broken, her face smashed. And as Biter begins to eat her cheek, she thinks, I cannot die yet. There is something I still need to do.
0: Yeah, Brienne is still dedicated to her quest there, demonstrating her conviction to die if need be. She's completely genuine in this. Lucky for Brienne, Gendry was nearby with a spear and she was saved from what would have been a very painful death. We'll pick up what happens next shortly. In the meantime, we're going to backtrack just a bit for a look at her journey to the whispers with nimble Dick Crab. But first, here's a message from another A Song of Ice and Fire podcast.
1: Y.D.? Yes, Neil? Do you ever get these urges to ship Jamie and Brienne? I sure do, but only with Close the Door and Come Here podcast. Why Close the Door and Come Here?
0: That's what my doctor recommends. I thought that was a Game of Thrones podcast full of book nerds who spoil everything. It is, but they also ship Jamie and Brienne like Bernie. It's scary, but in a good way. I think I could listen to that. Side effects may include hysterical bouts of laughter, fits of unbridled rage resulting in notebook throwing, equestrian metaphoritis, depression due to the fact that George R. R. Martin is torturing your favourite character and you're not entirely sure why you read these stupid books anyway. Many have reported hypercritical analysis, intense failing, poor impersonations of Australian accents and telling others to leave your presence when they aren't even in it. So close the door and come here. Close the door and come here. So fresh and so feisty.
1: So, thanks to ladies at Close the Door and Come Here podcast. And be sure to check them out if you're a Jamie Brienne fan or if you're up for a Game of Thrones podcast full of book spoilers. OK, and now it's time for a trip to Cracklaw Point.
0: So, Brienne's journey brings her into contact with all sorts of characters, but none nearly as funny as Nimble Dick Crab.
1: Yes, so in this section, we'll go through her journey around Maidenpool and meetings with Dick Crab who we feel is one of the most underappreciated comedic characters in this entire series. On the advice of the dwarf she met in Duskendale, when Brienne arrives in Maidenpool, she seeks out the Stinking Goose Inn.
0: Brienne and Pod already make quite an unusual pairing, and it's about time Brienne had some humour in her arc. All it took was for another outsider type of character to complete this unlikely trio, and this is where Nimble Dick Crab comes in.
1: So, Nimble Dick turns out to be an impoverished old man. He's thin and unkempt, wearing ragged and faded clothes and armour. He tells Brienne his sister is a whore, and as we get to know him, we start to feel a little bit sorry for him.
0: However, he is a local man and has great knowledge of the surrounding area, and so is valuable to Brienne. He knows loads of local legends, which not only grow in the telling, but are often absurd and a great source of humour.
1: Right. His stories are truly excellent, and we'll come to them. Dick has met a fool seeking passage for three. After some cross wires, Brienne thinks this is Dontos, Sansa, and Arya. And now she begins to pay Dick for more information, leading to him becoming their guide.
0: In this time of tension and suspicion for Brienne, we get early signs that Nimble Dick is a real character, someone that likes a joke. He often adopts a strange way of speaking and does unusual and offbeat things.
1: Yes, when Brienne pays him with a coin, it says, The man took the coin and spun it, smiling. I like to see a king dance. Hey nonny, hey nonny, hey nonny-ho (laughs) Mightn't be I saw this fool of yours
0: He starts referring to himself in the first person too Like when he's asked how he knew the fool was scared Old nimble dick knows the smell of fear
1: (laughs) Yeah, he clearly amuses himself He chuckles away when he confesses that he sent the fool to a cove to catch a ship But there hasn't been a ship there for 30 years
0: (laughs) So at this point, the reader, as Brienne is Is still wondering if this guy's a threat We think a reread of this chapter is really worth it With the benefit of the knowledge that he's really just a strange, lonely old yokel
1: Yes, a harmless bumpkin who likes telling his tall tales And only seems to have these local legends to be proud of and the first legend we get to hear about is that of Sir Clarence Crabb. Dick says, and with a straight face and full of passion, that the Whispers is named so because of the somewhat dubious exploits of Sir Clarence.
0: Yeah, he seems genuinely surprised that Brienne hasn't heard of this local hero, who sounds like a Westerosi Paul Bunyan. According to Dick, Clarence Crabb was eight feet tall and could uproot a tree with one hand and throw it half a mile. Yes.
1: And he also rode an aurochs, apparently, and he beheaded enemies to decorate his home. These heads were revived by his wife through some magic that sounds vaguely like Thoros' kiss of life. And now they whisper to each other, hence the name The Whispers.
0: Dick claims to be a blood relative of the mighty Sir Clarence, Underlining is neat to feel pride in his heritage and locale. It is fiercely competitive when discussing his idol. He's
1: yeah, very competitive. When Brienne responds with a tale of her favourite legend, Sir Galadon the Perfect Knight, a tale of valour and honour and a hero who won't unsheath his magic sword, Dick quickly interjects. <laughs> Sir Clarence Crab would have wiped his hairy ass with your perfect knight, <laughs> my lady." If they'd ever met, there'd be one more bloody head sitting on the shelf and it whispers, <laughs> you ask me, I should have used the magic sword. It'd be saying with all the other heads, I should have used the bloody sword. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and Brienne actually smiles here. She's clearly warming to Nimble Dick and it's a very rare thing to see Brienne smile.
1: Yeah, it is. And later Dick points out a supposed ogre's head in a rock formation and again we see her smiling.
0: Yeah, Dick is very amusing, and even Brienne can't deny that to herself. But still she wonders if he's merely charming her into letting her defences down, if he'll grossly betray her at any opportunity. Given what she seems to have been through her whole life with Ben, we can understand this. Again, this sows doubt in the readers' minds about nimble Dick, even after we see him soaked through and hungry.
1: Yeah, we get this pity, but after everything else these characters and the readers have been through... No one's ready to trust a shifty character like Nimble Dick, and Brienne consciously fends off this feeling of pity. Anyway, another legend Brienne and Pod get to hear about is called Crackbones. Dick really likes him, not quite as much as Sir Clarence Crab, but still he holds him in high regard.
0: Right, but all we get of Crackbones is that he fought a dragon and tied its neck in a knot so that every time it breathed fire, it roasted its own arse.
1: Yes, I can just picture that. But it's the final local legend that Nimble Dick tells us about that we find the funniest. And in fact, it's our nomination for the funniest moment of A Feast for Crows.
0: Yeah, the legend of the squishers. Now, you have to remember that Pod is with them, and despite his bravery at the Blackwater, he's still a shy, timid, easy-to-frighten young boy. There are no villages around, it's very dark, there's no shelter. It's a creepy, scary place they're in. Do you want to read on?
1: Yes, I definitely want to read this bit. Okay, so here's our introduction to Squishers, all right? Best to keep a watch tonight, milady. Crab told her, as she was struggling to get a driftwood fire lit. A place like this... There might be squishers. Squishers? Brienne gave him a suspicious look. Monsters, Nimble Dick said with relish. They look like men till you get close, but their heads is too big and they got scales where a proper man's got hair. Fish belly white they are, with webs between their fingers. They're always damp and fishy smelling, but behind these blubbery lips... They got rows of green teeth sharp as needles. Some say the first men killed them all, but don't you believe it? They come by night and steal bad little children, padding along on them webbed feet with a little squish squish sound. The girls they keep to breed with, but the boys they eat, tearing at them with those sharp green teeth. He grinned at Podrick. They'd eat you, boy. They'd eat you raw. If they try, I'll kill them. Podrick touched his sword. You just try that. You just try. Squishes don't die easy.
0: <laughs> no, I bet they don't. They got those scales where proper man's got hair. Proper man's got
1: hair. <laughs> Proper man, I love her And uh, I also like the bit where it says They're damp and fishy smelling It's trying to create this like awful monster It says that they're they're, fishy smelling With their blubbery lips Padding along on them webbed feet Making the squish, squish sound
0: Oh, and they're going to steal all the bad little boys
1: Yes, you can just... Imagine what Podrick's thinking at this stage. They'd eat you, boy. They'd eat you raw. Oh. <laughs> Those sharp teeth. <laughs> it's not fair. Poor Podrick. Poor Podrick. And as they eat, it says nimble dick told stories of the time Sir Clarence Crabb fought the Squisher King. A lively tale, apparently, according to Brienne. But it was.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and who do you think won that one?
1: I think we know where Dick Crabb's loyalties lie. Although I do think the Squisher King would give Sir Clarence Crabb a run for his money.
0: Those blubbery lips and those sharp green teeth. <laughs> I think Clarence might have struggled with them. <laughs>
1: yeah, me too. And if squishers don't die easy, imagine the Squisher King.
0: And I have to wonder if the Squisher King had been a bad boy. But good luck if you're trying to eat a man who can throw trees half a mile. Anyway, so there's more squish squish to come.
1: Squish squish. Later the trio see a rider, and Brienne is very suspicious of Dick here. He objects, pleading his innocence, uh, tries to reassure her that he's nothing to do with the follower. He concludes by saying, he's no squisher. ''That's bloody certain. Their sort don't ride horses.''
0: ''No,'' said Brienne. ''On that, at least, they could agree.''
1: ''Yes. Great dynamics with this group again. Brienne is just being so serious, and Nimble Dick just brings in this absurdity. Their sort don't ride horses.''
0: ''Yeah. Webbed feet, remember? Good in the scene for making squish squish (laughs) sounds. Not so great for equine activities.''
1: And I love how that ends. they sort, don't ride horses. Brienne thinking, on that at least, they could agree.
0: <laughs> and the last we hear of squishers and Clarence Crabb's head is when Podrick becomes frightened. It's bad here, Podrick said. This is a bad place. Brienne felt the same, but it would not serve to admit it. A pine wood is a gloomy place, but in the end it's just a wood. There's not here that we need fear. What about the squishers? And the heads. There's a clever lad, said Nimble Dick, laughing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's so good. So here at last, we've, we have the reason for Nimble Dick's stories. All along, he was just trying to frighten Pod to convince him that these stories of squishers were real, who have scales square a proper man has hair <laughs> and eats boys that have been bad.
0: Yeah, Nimble Dick is highly amused when Pod finally thinks the squishers are real. He seems to get a kick out of frightening Pod with these text. In some ways he reminds us of Old Man.
1: Yes, regional tales and legends Frightening the children Nimble Dick and Old Nan do have some things in common Incidentally, the whispers turned out to be the sound of waves Brienne realised this after Pod again takes the bait And with a gaping mouth claims to hear the heads Yes Thanks, Nimble Dick
0: <laughs> yes. Again, Pod goes for it but uh, Nimble Dick's stories actually go on to serve an important purpose and one that really saves Brienne.
1: Yeah, remember when Dick said Sir Galladon would have been beheaded if he'd ever ran into Sir Clarence Crab, And he goes on to say that Sir Galladon would have ended up with a severed head, regretting not drawing his magic sword. Well, as Brienne enters the territory of the three bloody mummers, she hears the waves... Or is it the heads, Nimble Dick? And she hears Dick's words I should have used the magic sword.
0: Yeah, and it's then she sends Podrick to get Oathkeeper. Nimble Dick's whispering heads told her to. Bringing Oathkeeper along with her is essential to her survival here, and she also finally puts some trust in Nimble Dick and arms him with a sword, too.
1: The mistrustful maid's giving old Dick a sword, is what he says, both. Honoured and surprised.
0: Mm, And now, enter Pig, Timian, and the psychopathic fool, Shagwell, the three bloody mummers who despise Brienne, and now Nimble Dick, too. We're going to have a reading of this scene soon, so to summarise, Shagwell has his revenge on Nimble Dick for his false information by shattering his knee with a triple morning star, and then, sadly, finishing Dick off with a blow to the face, which the fool finds hilarious. But we do not.
1: No, we do not. After the squishes, we're not happy with this. But that's the end of Nimble Dick, uh, just as we were growing so fond of him. Then the mummers try and distract Brienne with information about a Stark girl, Vargo, and there's lots of sexual threats, including Shagwell's promise to fuck her up the nose. And this kind of dates back to the scene with Jamie and Vargo, when she was almost raped by the Bloody Mummers.
0: Hmm, and then Brienne slays Pig with Oathkeeper, and Timmy too. too. Pod makes his contribution, reminiscent of his great deed at the Blackwater, by coming out of nowhere and throwing a rock at Shagwell's head. Eventually, Brienne sticks a dagger in his belly repeatedly, and we see her at her most savage...
1: And at the end of the chapter, the man who'd been following them earlier shows up, and it's Hyle Hunt. Obviously nothing to do with Nimble Dick, who was in fact telling the truth.
0: And before we have the reading of Brienne and Shagwell, we just want to round up the tragedy of Nimble Dick Crab. Despite handing him a sword at the end, Brienne really had a hard time trusting him, as we said. She grew increasingly suspicious of him, and he knew it. Brienne can't trust men or anyone else, which is completely understandable.
1: Right, that's the unfortunate flip side of this survival mechanism that we see her using with Nimble Dick of not trusting people. This mistrust of men tied to her backstory with Red Ronnet and justified via other men throughout her arc gives an extra depth in the relationship with the increasingly trustworthy Jamie, He might be the one to challenge her core beliefs and initiate change, as she has done for him.
0: Anyway, with Dick, she looks down on his body, his face so hard to look on, and she says, I'm sorry that I never trusted you. I don't know how to do that anymore.
1: Yeah, it's a really sad moment in several ways. So Nimble Dick was a good man, or at least a lot better than anyone gave him credit for. And with his non-stop talking and storytelling was an excellent foil for the shyness and awkwardness of Brienne and Pod.
0: Yeah, and don't we all wish we had a tourist guide like Nimble Dick Crab?
1: Yes, I do.
0: (laughs) But really, this stretch of the journey would have been rather dull without him. So in that sense, he was a valuable character. And I don't think we'll be forgetting about squishers anytime soon.
1: No, I'll probably be having nightmares about them, actually. Squish, squish. (laughs) Be a good boy. Yes. So, Brienne put two coins in his grave to honour the payment that she promised him, showing her newfound respect for Nimble Dick Crab. Rest in peace. Now, here's the reading of Brienne's fight with Shagwell, where we see a savage side to her, remembering those pigs she had to butcher as part of her training on tarf, which she recalls earlier in this chapter.
0: Also, note that this whole scene takes place in front of a weirwood, in case Brienne ever wants to watch it on Weirwood Vision.
1: Yes, that's interesting. And so this is what happened when Brienne of Tarth met Shagwell the Fool.
0: Shagwell was on his knees when she turned, looking dazed as he fumbled for the morning star. As he staggered to his feet, another stone slammed him in the ear. Podrick had climbed the fallen wall and was standing amongst the ivy, glowering, a fresh rock in his hand.
1: "'I told you I could fight!' he shouted down. Shagwell tried to crawl away. "'I yield. I yield. You mustn't hurt, sweet Shagwell. I'm too droll to die.'
0: "'You are no better than the rest of them. You have robbed and raped and murdered.'
1: "'Oh, I have, I have. I shan't deny it, but I'm amusing with all my japes and capers. I make men laugh.' "'And women weep.' "'Is that my fault? Women have no sense of humor. "'Brienne lowered
0: Oathkeeper. "'Dig a grave, there, beneath the weirwood,' she pointed with her blade. Uh, "'I have no spade.' "'You have two hands. One more than you left Jamie.' The ground was soft from rain, but even so it took the fool the rest of the day to dig down deep enough. Night was falling by the time he was done, and his hands were bloody and blistered. Brienne sheathed Oathkeeper, gathered up Dick Crab, and carried him to the hole. His face was hard to look on. I'm sorry that I never trusted you. I don't know how to do that anymore. As she knelt to lay the body down, she thought, The fool will make his try now, whilst my back is turned. She heard his ragged breathing, half a heartbeat before Podrick cried out his warning. Shagwell had a jagged chunk of rock clutched in one hand. Brienne had her dagger up her sleeve. A dagger will beat a rock almost every time. She knocked aside his arm and punched the steel into his bowels. Laugh, she snarled at him. He moaned instead. Laugh, she repeated, grabbing his throat with one hand and stabbing at his belly with the other. Laugh! She kept saying it over and over until her hand was red up to the wrist and the stink of the fool's dying was like to choke her. But Shagwell never laughed. The sobs that Brienne heard were all her own. When she realized that, she threw down the knife and shuddered.
1: So, Brienne's kills don't come easy there, emotionally at least. And there's so much going on in this scene with these bloody mummers. Brienne says to Shagwell that he makes women cry, due to his raping and so on. But this time he makes a woman cry for entirely different reasons.
0: Yeah, and notice Brienne is slaughtering and crying. The two sides of her character are in direct conflict here, her warrior's aggression and her sensitivity. As we said in the overview, Brienne wondered if she'd be able to kill her follower, remembering her master-at-arms making her kill those piglets and lambs. And Goodwin had said that she had a man's strength in her arms, but also had a heart as soft as any maids. This seems to have been an effort to toughen Brienne up, to rid her of her sensitivity as he saw it. Whilst Brienne did carry out the butchery, she always left blind with tears.
1: And Brienne did make her kills here too three in a very short space of time. But when using her dagger and not her magic sword, the emotion just became too much. On one hand, she did what needed to be done. She showed her savage side. But we see that she hasn't grown out of her sensitivity still. It's something that's really innate and that she might always have to deal with in the face of battle.
0: Right, that's who she is. A capable warrior with a sensitive soul. That is Brienne. Another interesting thing is her seeing Oathkeeper as a magic sword, and we've said that her conversation with Nimble Dick about the legendary Sir Galadon helped to save her with the mummers there.
1: Well let's take a look at her idol. When she was small it says her nurse had filled her ears with tales of valour, regaling her with the noble exploits of Sir Galadon of Morn, And then he's later named as the Perfect Knight. So this idealism about knights, which gives her uh, commonalities with Sansa, we can link to Brienne's overall naivety.
0: However, there was no room for naivete at the whispers, as she was required to make that triple kill. As she tells Dick, Sir Galadon was such a great knight, a magic sword was given to him by a maiden of the seven. He never unsheathed his magic sword to a mortal man, as it would have been unfair.
1: And as we said, here Brienne does use her magic sword, perhaps showing she's stepping away from naive idealism in a quest to become a serious warrior. But despite the kills, Brienne actually did give Shagwell with too much time and too much of an opportunity at the end there. She's by no means the finished article as a warrior or survivor just yet. Regardless, Brienne showed incredible bravery here, and killing all three was a great feat for her.
0: And we wonder about the fact that Brienne's only brother, who died when she was four and he was eight, was called Galadon. Did she connect the stories her nurse told her with the future her dead brother might have had, and resolve to follow in the legendary Sir Galadon's footsteps out of a need to honour her brother's memory?
1: Yes, it could be with her brother and her idol, both being named Galadon. And of course, Sir Galadon, like Brienne herself, bears more than a passing resemblance to Sir Galahad of real world legend, a perfect knight, beloved of the gods, bearing an enchanted sword. Since the parallel themes are so strong here, not to mention the similarities of the names, Galadon and Galahad, so we don't think that it's any accident that George has written it this way.
0: No, we don't. And just briefly, one more connection we see for Brienne to Arthurian legend is in the way she mediated Jamie's cleansing in the bath scene, as we discussed earlier. This has strong overtones with another legendary character, the grail maiden Elaine of Corbenic, who mediated Sir Lancelot's salvation from madness and despair, in part by bathing him. And it's far more complex than we can do justice to here, but considering the similarities between Jamie and Lancelot, both soiled white knights cookholding the king, we think this could be an interesting avenue to explore.
1: Here's some interesting parallels popping up for any of you that are into your Arthurian history. And anyway, we left off earlier with Brienne's fight with Rorj and Biter at the Crossroads Inn. This is a fateful last stop for many of the bad guys from Clash and Storm, with Aya and Sandor having only recently killed. Polliver and the Tickler there. When Brienne regains consciousness, she's become a captive of the BWB. Through her feverish thoughts and dreams, we get a sense of a nightmarish journey, one with undertones of a trip to the underworld as she is carried by boat across a foggy river and ends up in the BWB's underground lair.
0: And while she thinks of Renly and the hound, and is aware enough to know that she's being brought to Lady Stoneheart, which causes her to ask after her companions, her confused thoughts and words are mainly for Sansa, Jamie, and her magic sword. I'm looking for a girl, a high born maid of three and ten, and she could not fight without her magic sword. Sir so Jamie had given it to her. The thought of failing him as she had failed Lord Renly made her want to weep. My sword, please, I have to find my sword. And her thoughts continue, Oathkeeper, I have to find the girl, I have to find his honour.
1: So Brienne's still not given up her quest, though we have a clear indication that her reasons now have as much to do with helping Jaime regain his lost honour as with keeping her vow to Catelyn Stark. And when she wakes up and finds herself in the BWB cave with Thoros and Mia, we finally get a sense of how grim the situation is for her.
0: Yeah, when she asks who he is and what she's been accused of, Thoros replies, We were king's men when we began, but king's men must have a king, and we have none. We were brothers too, but now our brotherhood is broken. I do not know who we are, if truth be told, nor where we might be going. I only know the road is dark.
1: And now matched up against Seton Marabold's words about broken men, we get a sense that Thoros is admitting that not only is their fellowship broken, but that this group of brothers may well be broken in a more profound sense. And so a sense of dread begins to grow for Brienne. As Thoros tells her, a grimish shadow leads us in Lord Beric's place, and... I do not doubt that kindness and mercy and forgiveness can still be found somewhere in these seven kingdoms, but do not look for them here. And we recall that Lady Stoneheart is also known as Mother Merciless.
0: Mm, Yes, she is. And then Brienne is brought before Lady Stoneheart, who's also presented with Oathkeeper and that letter from Tommen, which had protected her earlier on her journey, but would be of no help here. Rianne tries to explain about the lion-headed sword. The sword was given me for a good purpose. Sir Jaime swore an oath to Catelyn Stark. He promised Lady Catelyn her daughters, but by the time we reached King's Landing, they were gone. Jaime sent me out to seek the Lady Sansa.
1: But in light of Jaime Lannister's sends his regards, reminding these people about his vows to Catelyn only gets her this unsurprising reply. Before his friends cut her throat for her, that must have been. We all know about the Kingslayer and his oaths.
0: And we mention this in our Jamie episode, but the vows made between Jamie and Cat and Brienne will most likely be really significant thematically as we move into the Winds of Winter. So let's take another look. Jamie recalls the vows he made to Cat. Swear that you will never again take up arms against Stark nor Tully, Swear that you will compel your brother to honour his pledge to return my daughter safe and unharmed. Swear on your honour as a knight, on your honour as a Lannister, on your honour as a sworn brother of the King's Guard. Swear it by your sister's life, and your father's, and your son's, by the old gods and the new.
1: And at the same time, Brienne made some vows of her own. When she entered Kat's service, it was, "'I will shield your back and keep your counsel,' And give my life for yours, if need be. I swear it by the old gods and the new. And when she left with Jamie, Brienne promised that she'd deliver him safely to King's Landing and that she would bring back Kat's daughters.
0: Hmm, and Brienne later notes that no promise was as solemn as one sworn to the dead, and she certainly proves her own dedication to keeping this promise. As we noted in the previous episode, Jamie appears to be making every effort to keep his vows as well. But Catelyn also made some vows. To Jamie, she promised to send you back to your sister, if he upheld his side of the bargain. And to Brienne, she said, I vow that you shall always have a place by my hearth, and meet and meet at my table, and pledge to ask no service of you that might bring you into dishonor. I swear it by the old gods and the new.
1: Mm, And this is what we think is going to be very interesting between the three. Recall Brienne's vows made to Jaime in King's Landing when he gave her Oathkeeper and he told her, I want you to find Sansa first and get her somewhere safe. How else are the two of us going to make good on our stupid vows to your precious dead Lady Catelyn? And Brienne, holding the sword, replied, I will find the girl and keep her safe for her lady mother's sake, and for yours.
0: So, here we are at conflicting vows again. Brienne is forcibly reminded by the young Northman in the Hollow Hill that she once swore her service to Lady Stoneheart, and the demands being made upon Brienne at the end of a feast for crows to find and kill Jamie Lannister, or she and her companions will hang, are based upon that vow. But bearing in mind that swearing your service to a liege lord is in a sense a contract between two parties, we can't help but wonder about the flip side of that vow where Catelyn promised to ask no service of you that might bring you dishonor.
1: Right, Brienne has made promises to Jamie, and at one point she thinks, She must not fail Jamie. He trusted me with his sword. He trusted me with his honor. Since she's made promises to him knows him to be a changed man, and actually owes her life to him, we think asking her to kill him is clearly a service that would bring her dishonour. So, can Lady Stoneheart be convinced to uphold her side of the bargain? Or does her likely refusal actually release Brienne from her vows to Catelyn?
0: Obviously, convincing Lady Stoneheart of Jamie's good intentions after Jamie Lannister sends his regards is going to be rather difficult. But we do think Brienne might find some wiggle room here, whether it's in pleading her case with the BWB or in justifying to herself the breaking of her contract with Catelyn Stark.
1: Yeah, and one way that she could plead her case with the BWB is by demanding a trial by combat for Jamie. If she acted as his champion, remembering that he's maimed, she could end up fighting one of the BWB on his behalf. Thoros or Lem? Trial by Lembats, anyone? Both seem likely candidates to us. The one with a flaming sword and the other wearing the hound's helmet. So either would evoke another trial by combat that we've already seen in the BWB cave.
0: Right, Sander versus Beric, where the unlikely exoneration of Sander for Micah's death occurred. But that's in the future. What we know for sure is that Brienne at first refused to kill Jaime, as was demanded by Lady Stoneheart, and was sentenced to hang along with her companions, refusing to answer Stoneheart's choice of sword or noose. But as she watched Podrick being strung up, she screamed a word, which was the last point of view we had from her.
1: And George has now confirmed that the word was sword, so it appears that she's offering her strength to Stoneheart's cause to prevent the hanging of Pod. Then in A Dance of Dragons, we know that she arrived at Jamie's encampment at Pennytree and told Jamie she had found the girl and I can take you to her, sir, but you will need to come alone. Elsewise, the hound will kill her. And that ends Jamie's POV as well.
0: So, quite a cliffhanger for them both, which is why we like to speculate a bit on outcomes. They're both mentioned again in Cersei's point of views as she gets the news that her brother rode off with some woman who might be Lord Selwyn's daughter. And Cersei's thoughts about this are pretty dismissive. Her, the Queen remembered the Maid of Tarth, a huge, ugly, shambling thing who dressed in man's mail. Jamie would never abandon me for such a creature. My raven never reached him, elsewise he would have come.
1: Which brings us back to the theme of beauty. This is a theme that really surrounds Brienne throughout the books. We're repeatedly told that she is ugly. Men comment on it all the time. And by the end, after the attack by Biter, her face, which was never pretty to begin with, is now seriously scarred and disfigured reminiscent of the terrible wounds borne by Sandor Clegane.
0: But she's called Brienne the beauty from the first time we see her at Bitterbridge. And while this is meant ironically and as an insult, we've wondered if George isn't calling attention to her inner beauty. With her similarities to Sansa Stark, her sweet innocence, devotion and chivalry, we can't think of another character who's more deserving of being thought of as beautiful on the inside. It's also become increasingly clear that the once vain and shallow Jamie has now recognised Brienne's brand of beauty.
1: Yeah, on some level at least, he does seem to have. And if you listened to our last episode, you might remember how we considered if this might tie into the Valenqua prophecy, with Brienne as a possible candidate for the younger, more beautiful person who will take everything Cersei holds dear. We did explain why we think... That that person doesn't necessarily have to be a queen. And as far as we know, Brienne's already starting to take Jamie in a sense. He's not only physically with her, but she seems to have his loyalty as well.
0: And in Dance, we think there's a hint in Cersei's point of view that Jaime has chosen Brienne. When she thinks, if Jaime had not lost his hand... That road led nowhere, though. Jaime's sword hand was gone, and so was he vanished with the woman Brienne somewhere in the Riverlands.
1: Hmm, so check out our Jamie and Cersei episode if you missed that one for more details on this idea. We think it could fit well with one of Brienne's major themes of beauty. And so, in summary, we think there's a lot of tale left to tell in Brienne's arc that will be very closely tied with Jamie. And in the short term, with Lady Stoneheart and the BWB as well. But possibly leading back to Cersei in the long run.
0: Oh, That's right. There are things that could go a number of ways, but in broad strokes and based upon the themes we've looked at here, we think that could be the gist of it. So that's our look at Brienne of Tarth, and also our consideration of the Jamie brienne cersei triangle.
1: Yeah, and we've really loved covering Brienne. She's a really interesting character, I'm sure you'll agree. But before we go today, here's a message from today's sponsor. No matter who you be, come on a tour of the beautiful town of Maidenpool and let good old nimble Dick Crab be your guide. Spin me a gold dragon, hey nonny, hey nonny, hey nonny ho, and I'll take yous all around. I've got good knowledge of the area and can take you anywhere you want and this guide knows how to light a fire to keep us warm. Let old nimble dick give you a tour whilst I keep you entertained with my stories of the local folk from history. Good old Sir Clarence rode an aurochs and chucked trees around like toothpicks. Hear about the dragon that roasted his own arse and you better know about them old squishers. They got scales where a proper man's got air and then takes off with those young maidens for breeding like. I'll take you to the whispers so you can hear Clarence's old heads talking away to each other. But don't worry, I'll keep you all safe. No one wants to mess with Nimble Dick. I got the blood of Clarence Crab in these veins. Nimble Dick, don't die easy. So sing with me, old dick. I won't let those squishers eat you raw.
0: And we hope you listeners enjoyed our episode on Brienne of Tarth, as Septon Maribald described her—a warrior maid with a quest. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll be back soon with a look at Barriston Selmy, where we'll conclude our extended look at knights and knighthood. And as always, before we leave, we have to give credit where credit is due. So, thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for a song of ice and fire. To Kevin MacLeod, we used his songs, Our Story Begins, We Got Trouble, Colorless Aura, and Fenster's Explanation. And thanks to Nine Inch Nails for allowing us to use elements of their music. And to Irish Matard for their great rendition of The Bear and the Maiden Fair. Full details of all music we use can be found on our mp3 tags and our website, Visit RadioEstros.com to find links to our essays and quick access to all our podcasts. You can also comment on our content there or connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google or Tumblr. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Bye for now. All oh. right.